This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 22 on page 961 of your Pew Bible. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach And so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, And so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thanks be to God. Man, that's good. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. All right. Okay, let's do this. Hey, uh, I've been debating all day and you just sealed it for me. So in other traditions and other churches, other times in the, uh, the globe this morning, people have been gathering and they've been saying, the leader will say, Christ is risen. And then the crowd will respond back, he is risen indeed. So we're going to try it like three times because the first one will be a total egg. I get that. But after that, we'll pick it up on number two and three. We'll bring it home. 
So I will say, Christ is risen, and you will reply, He is risen indeed. Now, if you're at home watching, kids, this is huge for you. It could be a little awkward if you're by yourself. Man, but there's nobody there. Just go ahead and belt it out. If you're in the overflow room, kids, we need you down there. Go ahead and say it loud and clear so we can celebrate. Because this is a day that we actually gather to celebrate what's true throughout history, for all of eternity. It'll be true tomorrow. And today we get a chance to celebrate this reality that Christ came and changed everything. And it didn't just change it doctrinally. It didn't just change it with ethics. He came and changed it with the power of his resurrection. So it's appropriate for us to celebrate and to say it out loud. So it'd be a little uncomfortable for most of us, but that's okay. Uh, it'll be all right. So I'll say, Christ is risen. You reply, he is risen indeed. All right, we'll give it three times. Don't put too much pressure on yourself the first time, but we're going to get it. Here we go. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for that reality that we get to stand with brothers and sisters around the globe. Actually, for millennium, people have stood and said, this is our hope that you have risen and you have risen indeed. It's proven. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's historic. It's stable. It's something that we can put our hope in. It's something that we can root our faith in. It's something that we can actually ground our shame and our fears and our anxieties, our regrets, our, our worries. We can ground all that around this reality because it is so sure and confident. So God, would you now in this room and where people are watching at home and people in the overflow room, God, would you, would you bring faith to us? Would you stir faith in our hearts? Would you give us the capacity to believe this good news in ways that change us not just for a morning or not just for a season, but for, for eternity? So God, would you help us take hold of what it means that we serve a resurrected Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, I don't know like how this year has been for you. I'm mindful there's folks who, this is your first time in a building with church since the pandemic began. So let me just say a special welcome to you. Thanks for uh, taking a risk and coming to be with us. I'm happy to celebrate and worship with you. But this year's been kind of crazy, and the pandemic's taught us a lot. It's taken a lot. There's been a lot of sadness and a lot of grief. And I had this on my mind as I prepped this message this week to think about all that happens in a pandemic to kind of orient us around what is most important. Do you remember like in the early days, maybe your job shut down and you were sent home, or maybe you're actually in like an essential industry and your job picked way up and you got really, really busy. I don't know how it started for you, but, but there was conversation early on about, hey, let's do what's most important and let's be most focused on what's most valuable. And so we tried to care for each other. We tried to be safe. And you probably had some times to think, man, if, if there's an imminent pandemic, I should make sure my life is focused on the most important things. This happens like at funerals. It happens in significant moments of our life where we just stop for a second and we get a chance to remember and think and contemplate and focus and evaluate. Hey, am I living my life according to what is most important? So the pandemic kind of reminded us of that, but it's been a year now. So it also showed us that it's easy to drift from that. So I don't know about your family, but we made some massive commitments week two of the pandemic that by week five we had totally forgotten. I mean, we were going to set all kinds of records and goals. We're going to read the scriptures. We're going to exercise every day. I think I put on like 15 pounds in the pandemic. I should have lost 15 and I went the other direction, right? So there's this moment of clarity where you go, oh, this is most important. That's real. But the temptation and the struggle to drift from what's most important is also pretty real. 
And I don't know if that's your reality. You don't have to own my dysfunction. You go like, hey, dude, I did lose 15 pounds. I am, I am slaying it. I did conquer the pandemic. Great for you. I'm really thankful. I'd love to meet you and we could talk some more about some life coaching that you could do for me because I've experienced this awareness and it comes into focus and then it tends to, to drift. And that's actually not just pandemic time. That's most of our reality. Well, I say all that because I think in this text what we see is the people that Paul's writing to in the first century, these are first generation Christians, are struggling already to shift away from the most important thing. So did you catch there in these first passages, you say that I'm telling you what is of most importance, he says in verse 3. I'm reminding you the thing that's most valuable. But then we see in verse 12 that they've begun to shift a little bit. So this most important thing that Christ was raised, by the time we get to verse 12, he says, but some of you are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. So Paul's writing to Christians who are struggling to lay hold of or apply or make sense of or stay focused on what is this most important reality, which is the resurrection. So take a deep breath if you struggle with that, like you're at home in the scriptures, you're at home in the human race, you're at home with humanity. And part of the reason why we need a savior is our tendency to actually drift. So I don't say that to like bring shame upon us. I say it actually as an encouragement to say, oh, what we get a chance to do this morning is to remember, because what Paul wants to do is remind them of what's most important. So they live their lives according to what is most important. And not just like setting good goals, not just financial situations, not just noble ways to relate and culture in ways that are good for their souls and will make a difference in their eternity. And he says, hey, if you leave this behind, if you abandon the resurrection, then your faith is actually in vain. He'll use that word four times and it should get our attention because you don't want to live a life that's kind of aimed at something to find out that it's been in vain. And what he's saying is there's a, a habit that we have, even as Christians, to say we believe in who God is, and then we begin to round off the edges as time goes on. So, so they haven't abandoned the faith altogether, right? They would still claim to follow Jesus. Just what's happened over the last few years or decades of their life is they begin to wonder, is the bodily resurrection really real? That's the question in verse 12. Some of you have begun to say there's no resurrection from the dead. You used to believe that. That's how you came in the door. That's what you first hoped in, but now you've begun to drift from that. And maybe it's their experiences. Maybe they thought Christ would come back sooner, so they're, they're frustrated with how they're experiencing their faith. Maybe their expectations haven't been met. Maybe it's suffering from the outside. Maybe it's just this idea that, man, the resurrection is so mind-blowing, it's, it's hard without faith to hold on to, right? They, they were not like a suspicious, superstitious people that we may some imagine like they were easily uh, duped or they were gullible. These were people that knew dead people don't rise on their own. So, so maybe over the last few years and decades, they just began to go, hey, maybe, maybe I can have a faith that's intellectually credible without actually holding on to a resurrection. Maybe this miraculous idea of God raising the dead, maybe I don't need that to still have faith in a God and maybe the way he commanded me to live and to love my neighbor, maybe that would be enough. Or maybe just gathering with people or thinking about my sins being forgiven. Like, maybe that would be enough. Maybe I could hold on to a faith, but maybe set aside this strange, provocative, profound, maybe hard to hold on to, hard to apply reality of the resurrection of the dead. And maybe that describes you. Maybe on some sort of scale of faith, if zero means your presuppositions won't allow you to believe that there is something supernatural and you would never believe in a God that you can't see and touch. Or, or 10 is you never doubt. You're always 
faithful and believe the scriptures and you never waver, most of us probably live between like two and eight or three and seven or four and six, right? We kind of are in the middle of that. And maybe your experiences this last year have caused you to wonder, is God actually powerful? Did what he promised actually um, come true? Is he actually delivering on what he said he was going to do? Is there really hope after this life? Because this year has kind of been bananas and it's given you lots of opportunity to hope in lots of things, to hope in a vaccine, to hope in the mask mandate being lifted, to hope in, in politicians, to hope in a certain media feed, to hope in being right about something, to hope in being really safe, to hope, to hope that you could actually make yourself safe through certain parameters. Like you've, you've had a chance to hope in lots of things. What Paul invites us to through the scriptures this morning as we think about Easter is to reorient our hope to the one place that lasts for forever, the one place that actually has the power to save, the one reality that Christ promised to us that would actually unravel all of the evil and brokenness of the world. And I want to maybe think about where you are on that, on that scale, right? Because you think about values, but we tend to drift. Like, I would guess the amount of Netflix shows you watch this year don't accurately reflect your values of, like, what you think is actually most important. I wouldn't guess those hours kind of reflect, man, I think this is the best thing I can do with my time. We just tend to drift that way. And maybe when it comes to faith, you found yourself drifting in and out. There's been moments where you've trusted God, you've been afraid and scared, and you've thought, man, if I could put my hope in something eternal, that will get me through this pandemic. And then there's places where our anger and our anxiety and our fear and our struggle with soothing ourselves through certain temptations to actually cope with the pain we feel has showed that maybe we don't actually put our hope in the God of the universe. So, so wherever you find yourself, maybe just make note of what the year has been like or where you are coming into Easter Sunday, right? It's a great day. There's donuts and we get dressed up and we come to see people and we get to, to say he is risen. He is risen indeed. And yet you're somewhere on this scale. So pay attention to where your heart's at as we jump into this text and follow Paul's argument because he's talking to Christians and they're not staunch skeptics. Let me just say that. If you're in the room or you're watching and you would put yourself like in that zero to two, you're going like, man, I, I think Christians can be nice people. I'm pretty suspicious though. The whole organized religion thing is actually helpful to history and society. And you have a hard time believing the Bible could be true. And as you watch the world around you, you're going, man, I'm pretty sure there's not a God or this kind of suffering would happen. Whatever the things are that kind of give voice to your skepticism, if that's where you are, I don't think what we'll talk about today will sway you. But I would love to get a chance to sit down with you and hear what your presuppositions are and what your experience has been and what some of your questions are, because I think God does answer those in significant ways. And what he's going to say to these people to assure them that this is the main thing and that they can't actually put their hope in it, I think we'll find helpful, but I bet you it won't be all the way convincing if you find yourself an ardent skeptic, because he's not actually speaking to skeptics. He's speaking to Christians who are struggling to stay focused. And so I just want to name that at the beginning. This is not necessarily an apologetic sermon to convince you that the resurrection is undoubtedly true, although I think it is. And I would love to dialogue with you about that. It's actually a message for Christians to remember, hey, what you're struggling with finds its hope and fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus and his promised resurrection for you. Don't abandon that. Or don't drift from that. Or don't round off the edges of that, even though it seems so out there that sometimes it doesn't connect to your everyday life. Paul actually wants to help you see it does connect to your everyday life. So, so that's 
kind of the introduction, right? That's where they've been. That's what they're struggling with. This idea that maybe I don't need that form of the resurrection to be able to go forward. And so Paul wants to just walk through some things to help them and encourage them. And I just want to track his argument to help and encourage you. I'm going to use the letter P to kind of organize our time. There'll be four or five P's. So the first one is, he says what's primary or what's, what's most important. Now look with me in verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul's writing to Christians and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Right? This is the good news, the message about Jesus, of which you've received, of which I stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of most importance what I also received. Right? So Paul's saying, I didn't invent this or make this up. This is the historic Christian faith. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay, so Paul says, hey, I want to remind you of what's most important. And what he wants to do is just say, hey, this is not a new idea. I'm not giving you some new teachings that are going to improve your faith. This is what Christians have always believed. I received this. I passed this to you, Paul says. This is what you believe to become a Christian. The logic is, if you step away from this, you're stepping away from what is the essential Christianity. And this, verses 3 to 5, they, they read a little bit different. Let me read them again. It, it reads like a creed or like a hymn or like a poem. Scholars think this is probably one of the first Christian creeds we have. This is something they were saying within maybe months or years after Christ was crucified, was buried, and raised. Listen to what it says again. For I delivered to you as the most importance what I also received. Colon. This is it. This is what I received. Here's the creed. That Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. You see those four that's? There's four parts of this creed that he wants to lay out for them, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. This is the primary Christian faith. And what he's saying is you don't have Christianity apart from that. So you can't like sanitize it and take out the miracles and you can't round off the edge of the future and have a present hope. He's saying, this is what I first delivered to you that was given to me, right? So he says, this is primary. This is the, the main focus. And he says, there's proof for that. The first proof is that it's in accordance with the scriptures, right? That's my second P. There's proof in that. The first one is he says twice in this creed, he reminds them that Christians have always based their faith on the historic scriptures of God's divine revealed word. So they didn't just invent some understanding of what Christ had done. They see in the Old Testament scriptures the fulfillment of God keeping his promise that he was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, to come and reconcile us to himself. That that one would actually die in our place, Isaiah 53 tells us. That he would suffer on our behalf and his suffering, his death, would actually be a, a substitute for us. And then there would be a resurrection that God would actually come and, and would raise him. It would vindicate his death by proving that he actually was God. And you see, not just in specific verses, but in the story of the Old Testament, this is what God has always been doing. There's a great reversal throughout Scripture. The story of God is the story of life and then rebellion that leads to death. God's promise to deal with that death through his own death and sacrifice as a way to make you whole and saved again. So the sacrificial system would, would point to all this, all the, the rules and rituals in the Old Testament. He's saying, according to the scriptures, God has always had a sacrifice as a way for you to be brought 
close to God. And Christ is the one who did that. Don't forget that, right? So he proves it first by the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, and this isn't just happened from the scriptures. People witnessed and saw this. So go back with me in verse 5. He said that Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he breaks stride with that creed and he just expands it. He says, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared even to me. So he says, let me prove this to you, but Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised. According to the scriptures, there's proof one. Proof two is eyewitness accounts. And he goes out of his way to say there's people here that are still alive that you could go and talk to. Many of them are still alive, he says in verse 6, which means you can go check this out. So Christianity would have never gotten off the ground if it was rooted in a lie, claiming to have eyewitnesses that said, yeah, this actually happened. I saw the resurrected Christ if they had never actually seen the resurrected Christ. It would have stayed local. It would have been like a cult that dies out over time. And people wouldn't suffer and die for what they believed was a lie. And they surely wouldn't pass that on for millennium in ways that would radically transform the world. So he's saying these are people here that saw they were eyewitnesses. And so his proof of this resurrection hope, this message of Christianity is, hey, there are people there who watched it. You can go ask them. Uh, Timothy Keller has a new book um, on the resurrection. And in there, there's a section where he quotes another scholar and just gives this list of places and ways that Christ appeared. Paul gives kind of a summary here, but listen to this. Christ was recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in the countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, but by prior appointment and without prior appointment, up close and at a distance, on a hill and by a lake, with groups of men and with groups of women, to individuals and to groups of 500. He appeared sitting and standing and walking and eating and always talking. He has these up-close encounters involving conversations with these eyewitness accounts. So Paul says, hey, you're tempted to step away from something to kind of make it make more sense or to make it more palatable or because of your suffering. I'm not exactly sure. But if you step away from this, your faith starts to unravel. So let me remind you and prove to you that what Christ actually did as he rose was real so that you can trust his promise that he will raise you as well. That's the logic of what he's doing, right? This is primary. Let me give you now proof. And he actually gives a third proof with his, his own story of transformation, right? So the, the third P I want to use is Paul's personal transformation. What he does after he lists that all these other people saw them, he says, and he actually appeared to me in verse 6 as one of them that was most untimely born. That's actually verse, verse 8. He appeared to me as one untimely born. He appeared also to me, and I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me, it wasn't in vain. There actually was change. It wasn't just words, right? You're tempted to follow a faith that's just words. It'll be in vain. But what God did in my life actually was real. It was substantial. It changed me. He says, on the contrary of being vain, I actually was transformed in such a way that I worked harder than everybody else. But wasn't I but the grace of God that was in me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached to you and so you believed. All right, the grammar there is a little bit clunky for us, but what Paul is saying is, hey, let me put evidence number three on the table for you, my transformed life. And Paul goes from one who hated Christ and hated the church and persecuted the church 
to one who actually would lead the church. And he's just going, how on earth would that have happened without something miraculous like life coming out of death? If there was no power in the resurrection, if Jesus didn't actually kind of rise from the dead and keep the promises that God had made, then I wouldn't be transformed and changed, Paul is saying. And he puts his own kind of story on the table, which is interesting for us, right? Because oftentimes we don't just ask, is something true? We ask, does it work? Think about the number of things that you believe are true that you don't follow because you're not sure they work. And the things that if someone can show you, man, this will make your life different or better, you're tempted to move towards it because of the evidence of the change in that person's life. Now, what's fascinating is Paul's already proven according to the scriptures and these eyewitnesses. So he's not just saying, hey, look at me. I can be your only evidence. But he's putting icing on the cake in some ways to say, hey, man, my life was changed and transformed. And what's fascinating about the way he talks is he has this assessment of himself as one who is unworthy. He doesn't stop and say, look at me. I'm the one who's amazing. I followed all the rules. I did all the stuff. And God surely would love me. You can follow my stellar example. Instead, what he says is, let me give you evidence of the resurrection. Somebody like me, full of shame and regret, who looks at their past and sees the zeal that I was living for actually was opposed to God and brought lots of harm to lots of people. And God came into my world and he radically transformed me. I was unworthy. I was the least of the apostles. I was the one farthest from being saved, farthest from being transformed, farthest from being chosen. That was me. I'm all the way to zero on the scale. I met Christ, the resurrected Jesus, and he transformed me. He changed me and didn't just change me in ways that were academic or were my behavior from the inside out. He radically transformed everything about me so that I moved from being the least to somebody who's actually giving their life away in obedience and in service to Christ. And it sounds a little bit arrogant to be quite honest. You're like, Paul's like, I'm better than everybody else. So you're like, man, you go from zero to 10. Is that the right assessment? But he actually three times names grace as the reason why he's able to move from being unworthy to one who's actually now following after God. I love he embeds in his own personal testimony his need for God's grace, which is an invitation to us, right? The word unworthy describes so many of us. And the good news for you on resurrection morning is that what Christ is offering you is not a better way to live so that God is more pleased with you or you make yourself more worthy. Christianity offers you a God who stood in your place and took the punishment for your sin And he went all the way to the grave on your behalf, but he didn't stay dead. He rose so that you can have confidence that your sins can actually be forgiven. And it's all by God's grace, by grace, by grace, by grace, three times. He'll name that so that we don't miss it. Actually, in this transformed life, what we see is that Paul's able to have like a right assessment of himself, humbly looking at his regrets and his past, his frailty, his humanness but not in a way that brings condemnation and shame as a way that actually brings about this understanding that he's lovable because of what Christ has done. Oh, friends, would you hear that? This year has been crazy for so many of us. There have been moments this year that you have done things that you would take back a thousand times if you could. You would pay any number of dollars to get back a moment or a conversation or an experience or a place where you just blew out your life. And in that space of shame, when you hear the good news that the resurrection power of Jesus, like it was able to rescue Paul, who was so unworthy, is able to rescue you. Christian, he died in your place. Don't abandon your understanding of the resurrection because it's in that understanding of the resurrection that you actually have hope for your own personal transformation. 
So Paul says, hey, this is primary. Let me prove this to you with the scriptures, with eyewitness accounts, with my own life. And let me actually put my personal transformation on the table to show you that this is not actually just something you can set aside. Everything hinges on our understanding of the resurrection. And now we'll go to verses 12 to 19, and we'll look at a present and a future hope. Struggling with P's, I was committed to it. I didn't want to just go future, I want to go future. So present and future hope. P-H, hope. And that space that we see here is Paul lays out for us like what happens now and what happens in the future. Thanks for laughing. It was funnier in my head than it was out loud, but in my heart, it was worth it in that space. I'm so committed to peace on Resurrection Sunday. All right, so look with me in verses 12 to 19. Here's what's crazy. He says, all right, now I've proved all this to you. I've told you it's primary. I put my personal transformation on the table. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And now in verses 13 to 19, what he's going to do is go down an imaginary trail like a dystopian future of if, in fact, Christ hasn't been raised, what happens? So, so think about those movies you've seen or maybe sitcoms where there's an episode where the, the protagonist has this question of what if I'd never been born? What if I didn't do the thing that I did some number of years ago? What would have happened? So the classic one is It's a Wonderful Life. And Jimmy Stewart's character has this moment where he kind of wishes he wasn't there. He wishes he hadn't lived. And so he comes back after this angel, Clarence or Clive or Larry or something. Some angel walks him through kind of life without him. And he sees this dystopian future, what would have happened if he hadn't lived and all the bad things that would have taken place. And it's a theme we see in lots of movies. Our kids are rewatching the sitcom Psych, and we're at that spot now where Juliet finds out that Sean isn't actually psychic, and there's that episode where the whole episode is two different trails of what if she hadn't found out, and what if she did find out, and the different things that happened in that. So it's a, it's a common theme we have. Hey, what if this wasn't actually true? So Paul's going to go down this dystopian rabbit trail to say, imagine that he wasn't raised. Then, then what would happen? Look in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Hey, you're wrestling with wondering, is the resurrection of the dead real? Let me just kind of say, hey, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if we have a future without that, if you imagine a world where there is no resurrection, then even Christ himself wasn't raised. And verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And you might say, no big deal. I already think that anyway. I already think preaching is kind of lame anyway. But what they're doing with preaching there is not Sunday morning gatherings. This is instructing God's people how to live according to his word. He's saying that what we're telling you about how to apply the gospel when it comes to forgiveness and your sexuality and generosity and the ways you relate to people that are on the outside and the ways you relate to your enemies in those spaces, all of that is worthless. It's it's all vain. The way we're instructing you, because what we're instructing you about has at the center of it the resurrection of Jesus. That is the key piece of it. And if there's no resurrection, then everything else we're teaching you just falls apart, which means there is no Christianity that's simply ethical or that's simply moral. Or that that's a nice way to engage in society. He's saying, man, all of it is worthless. The teaching you would receive is actually in vain. And he goes on to say down this dystopian trail, not only is the preaching in vain and what you gather around in vain, your faith itself is in vain. You, you can't have faith without the resurrection. And he goes on, and we've even found to be misrepresenting God. If there is no resurrection, then what we're saying about God is misrepresented because we're telling you God's the kind of God who brings life out of death. So you can have hope. He is the kind of God who throughout history has walked alongside of broken people and brought about 
redemption and healing and restoration and hope to them. And he's saying, we're misrepresenting God altogether. If there's no resurrection, this dystopian future would mean the way we're even talking about God and his love and the way he comes towards you, all that's being misrepresented. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise. If it's true that the dead are not actually raised. Verse 16, and if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. He wants to say that twice so that you get it. Actually, your understanding of what Jesus did is rooted in the reality of the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There is no place to put that sense of unworthiness, that regret, that sin, that sin, that shame. There's no place to locate that. There, there is no place for your sins to be forgiven. You are still dead in your sins if, in fact, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've all perished. Those that we have hope for from those who passed away even this year, those who, who we're missing desperately this Easter Sunday morning, there's no hope for them. If in Christ we have hope only for this life, then we are all people should be pitied. Actually, the idea that you could just live a moral life because of Jesus' ethical teachings, actually makes you pitiable, he says. Okay, so he walks down this dystopian trail for us to say, hey, if you're going to allow yourself to entertain the idea that maybe there is no resurrection from the dead, and again, go back, not just like theologically imagine that, but functionally and practically imagine that. Like, Look back over this last year. Where can you trace hopes, responses, beliefs, reactions, that are only explained because you believe there was a resurrection. How did you engage the fear of this pandemic? How did you engage the fear of those around you as they experienced the pandemic? Where did the idea that, hey, this life is not my hope, it's just the beginning, there's actually a future for me in bodily form, and so if I die, I'm okay. That's the way the resurrection gives hope to something like a pandemic, right? That's not all it does, but that's a slice of what it does. Can you just go back over the last 365 days in your mind I mean, is that on my mind? And maybe like on this scale, right? Maybe I put myself like on a six or a seven. I theologically believe in the resurrection, but practically am I living? Am I actually living under the encouragement and joy and beauty and blessing, under the sense of forgiveness and hope that Christ purchased for me in the resurrection? Like friends, what Christ did actually changes everything. It communicates his deep love for you. It says that there's actually a hope for your future, right? We could just go back down this dystopian road and and we could unravel it, right? If Christ has been raised, then Christ keeps his promises and God is a promise-keeping God. The Christian message does actually offer hope to people because it's not about ethics, it's about transformation. Your faith is not in vain because it's actually rooted in something historical and eternal. And there's massive implications both for now and for your future, And we're not misrepresenting God. God is the kind of God that does this great reversal, this subversive hope that Tim Keller calls it, this idea of life coming out of death. That is the way God works. So for your marriage, there's hope. For your struggle with sexuality as a single, there's hope. For your job, there's hope. For racism, there's hope. For poverty, there's hope. For war, there's hope. For disease, there's hope. For your anxiety, there's hope. For your shame, there's hope. There is hope in this great reversal because in the resurrection, what we see is God steps into death and brings about life. So whatever version of death you carry, emotionally, spiritually, physically, the resurrection speaks a better word over that of God's transforming grace. 
We're not misrepresenting God. God is the God of the great reversal. And there is hope for the life after this one. For, for those that have gone before us who we long to see again. And there is hope in the resurrection of Jesus for everything that we need in this life. Right? Our faith is not futile. It actually transforms the way that we live. And there's real forgiveness for our sins. I don't have to carry the weight and the shame. Gosh, would you just hear that? What we celebrate Easter Sunday is not just whether or not you academically believe in miracles. It's the invitation to be transformed from the inside out and to have the sins and the burden of your shame lifted and placed on Jesus. And not just like in a way that's sentimental and makes you feel better, in a way that's substantive because he paid the penalty for it and he proved that through his death, burial, and resurrection. Right? He conquered death and sin through the resurrection and there's, there's hope for people that have passed away this last year. And we're not to be pitied, but to be an encouraged people, a hopeful people, a resilient people, a loving people who root their past and present and future in the work of Christ. Right, right, that's what he actually has accomplished for us. And so he goes down this dystopian road for us and says, if you're going to step away from the resurrection, just realize all these things happen. And there's that scene, right, in the It's a Wonderful Life where where he wakes up or comes out of the river or Clarence rings the bell, I don't know how it happens, but he kind of comes back to reality, right? And it's that, oh, Mary, that moment where he actually sees his wife and all that he feared isn't actually true. It actually didn't happen that way. And so what Paul now says is that actually Christ came and he has been raised. Look in verse 20. He's gone down this dystopian trail and then he says, but wake up. Okay, that was a dream. Wake up. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what we experience is now what he calls the first fruits. First fruits are the beginning of the harvest. It's where we get our idea of like tithes and offerings from that you give the first 10% of what you make away. So in the Old Testament and ancient times, they would bring a sacrifice or an offering to God, an animal or a crop or whatever had happened and saying, hey, this is for you. We worship you for this. It was a deposit as well. There's going to be a harvest. And it was also a, a taste of it. So when Paul says that Christ's resurrection is like a first fruits, it, it's, it's simultaneously a deposit and a guarantee that there's more to come. Right? That's what first fruits are. It's the first yield of the crops. When you first see that, you know every farmer knows, oh, there's more coming. It worked. We're going to make it this year. right? So the first fruits point to the rest of the harvest, and it gives you a sense of what you can expect, a, a taste of what's to come. So Paul says, hey, this resurrection hope I'm offering to you, it isn't just something from the past, it's actually a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God that is not here fully yet, but it is here substantially. I read that phrase in Keller's book this week, and I said, oh, that's such a helpful way to say that. The first fruits prove for us Kingdom of God has come, and it's not fully here yet, right? This is not as good as it's going to get, but the deposit has been made, and we're tasting now in the forgiveness and redemption of Christ what is to come. And it is substantial, though. It's, it's actually real. So he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised, and these are the first fruits that we experience, and it's applied to those who have fallen asleep, to those who've actually died. There's hope for the death we've experienced this year because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. These first fruits of hope are applied to everyone who believes, and it's rooted, again, not in sentimentality, not in wishful thinking, but in the substantial historical reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then he closes this way. He says, and this is something you can be as certain of. Look in verse 21. He used that word for, right? Here's why. Here's how, how, how come you can trust this. 
For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As sure as everything is messed up because of the original sin of our forefathers, and everything is broken and shattered, and we experience the effects of sin, as sure as that is, he says, what Christ has done offers a sure, solid, hopeful redemption. Sin came through one man, and life comes through another. All that is broken and dead comes through one man, and everyone can be made alive who will trust in Christ. The death is certain in Adam. The life is certain in Christ is what Paul lays out for his friends. And remember, they're struggling to believe that there is this kind of future hope, that it could actually be that good, that God actually did raise the dead. And he says, hey, let me tell you, this is actually where you started. It's the primary place of your faith. And there's proof that it's real. There's so many eyewitnesses. It's lined up with the scriptures and tons of transformation stories. Paul offers his own transformation to give us an example of how our shame and unworthiness could be dealt with. And he says there's present hope and there's future hope. I hope for your present situation and for your eternity because of what Christ has done. So so then we hope, not just in this life, but in the life to come because of the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, Easter is not just a holiday. It's not just a time that we get dressed up. It is a declaration that Christ has won the war and he's won it on your behalf. And whatever you're carrying from this past year, he died to actually heal, to take the shame away from, to give you a hope in the middle of it, and to secure your future. What Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection changes everything. That is great cause for us to celebrate on Easter Sunday. There's a thousand applications to that in your own life that I pray God actually takes us deep into our hearts and pushes this idea that we're tasting now in small form what is to come. Would you think about your marriage? Would you think about your singleness? Would you think about your job? Would you think about your body? Would you think about your broken relationship? Would you think about your anxiety and your shame and your fear and your struggle? Think about all those things and find hope in what Christ has done for you, which is such good news. It's not rooted just in yourself. So so we take communion every Sunday to declare, to declare the truth of this, that it's through Christ's broken body and shed blood that we actually now have real substantial hope. And it's a way of tasting those first fruits, right? Physically to take it in, to put it across your lips as a follower of Jesus, to taste the sweetness of that juice and to eat something substantial to say it is real what Christ has accomplished for you. So so I want to invite you to take communion if you're a follower of Jesus. If you didn't know we're taking communion, there's some cups up here at the front. There's also some in the back. You can slip out real quick and you can grab whatever you need. There's also some prayers on the back of your bulletin. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. Thanks for coming to be with us. And maybe you've been part of our community for a long time. Thank you. We're thankful that you're here. But if you've been part of our community, you hear me say every Sunday, this is a meal that's for Christians. And I'm not saying that to exclude you or to push you away, but just to clarify, this is a statement of faith in Christ. And so I wouldn't want to ask you to do that if that wasn't actually your heart. If you weren't putting your faith in Jesus, I wouldn't want you to go through the motions of just some random ritual, right? So, so we're actually saying, this is what I believe. So if that's not you, no pressure, man. You can just sit in your seat and pray while the rest of us take communion. Roxanne will begin to play softly and we'll just take a time to pray and thank God. But there are some prayers in the back of that bulletin that might give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray 
to ask God for help, to speak to you, to clarify what he actually has done. And maybe you believe for the first time. Maybe God's been working in your heart such a way. And again, I don't think what I said today is going to compel you from, from all the way from zero. But if God's been drawing you and you're ready to trust Christ, I man, take communion on this first Easter Sunday and then come talk to one of our pastors. We would love to navigate with you what that means and how to think about going forward. So let me pray now and then we'll take communion. You just take it there on your own. That wafer represents the broken body of Christ and that cup represents his shed blood. And take it with a ton of joy. And take it with this passage in your mind that this is the first fruits. What we're experiencing in forgiveness and grace and the lifting of shame isn't all there will be. There's more still to come. What great news there is. And it's not just limited to this life. It's actually rooted in the next and we have hope for that because of Christ's resurrection. That is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray for you and then invite you to communion and then we'll sing one more song. Jesus, thank you for all that you did. Thanks for dying. Thanks for rising. Thanks for paying the price. Thanks for applying your redemption to us. Thanks for stories like Paul's of someone who was unworthy, who's actually running the opposite direction of you, that you turned towards you, that gives us hope for our own life. So God, I pray now in the room, you would lift shame, you would deepen encouragement, you would speak to anxiety, you would rescue and save people, you would awaken our hearts. And for those who feel just this skeptical thought that this just could never be, you actually speak to them about the reality of who you are. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.